How's everyone doing? Good. We are continuing in Romans. We are in Romans chapter 6 tonight. As I shared last week, Romans 5 through basically 8 verse, I think it's 11, um, really is one train of thought. And so we're breaking it up, but we are going to try and keep the context of all that Paul is talking about in in these verses. And so I want to just kind of briefly jump back to chapter 5, and we can start at verse 18 and go to the end to kind of get a little springboard into chapter 6. And so Romans 5, 18, he says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation, For all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. So the one act of the one trespass was who? Adam. Okay. And so we have here Adam. And then we have the one righteous act is Christ. Okay. And so this is leading into what he's going to be talking about. We have Adam. And we have Christ. And remember, the righteous act resulted in justification. The idea of justification is that God now has ruled in your favor. The righteous act is the covenant agreement. Try and keep that idea of covenant and righteousness together. Because it's not, again, that God just sees you as right. It's God made an agreement. He did what is necessary to put us in the terms where he now sees us as justified. But we are right because of the covenant that God has made. Verse 19, for just as though the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And Paul talked about last time how they weren't quite the same. The, the trespass of Adam wasn't the same or equal to the righteous act of Christ because what happened is Adam, the one sin, resulted in many following after him, but Christ's one act had to cover the trespasses of many. And so it was greater still. God's gift was greater than the result of Adam's sin. And that's important to understand because it is more than enough. Verse 20, it says, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. And we talked about that. The idea of increase is actually the idea of being illuminated. So it was brought in so that it would be illuminated, the trespass. Now, whose trespass? The trespass might increase. Adam's, the trespass, okay? Adam's trespass, it was brought into this place, the law was brought in to bring the focus on Adam's trespass. Why? So it could be illuminated. That's the idea of increase, so that there could be a light shining on it, so that we could be aware of it even more so. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he jumps right in to chapter 6 because you would think, okay, well, if sin is there, but doesn't matter if the sin is there because the grace is there and it's going to be even greater than. So if sin is there and it's, you know, There for us to understand, grace might increase. Well, then verse 6 or chapter 6, verse 1 says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul is now answering questions that are there and and Paul is promoted this doctrine of grace in in chapter 5. And then some would say, well, if grace is there, then we can go on sinning, you know, 
people just get this idea, well, if God's grace is there, I can rob a bank and get some money and everything will be okay. And he's addressing that, but he's his statement is a lot more detailed than that. He's not just saying, well, then, yeah, we can just go on sinning. Yeah, it covers that. But he's really bringing more here because what, what Paul is trying to do is help us connect our identity to Christ. And, and so before we had the identity of Adam, the sphere of Adam, and now there's the sphere of Christ. And he is continuing this idea of who do you belong to? The idea here of you are dead or this idea of baptism and being baptized. Baptism is meant to help us identify ourselves with this new sphere of influence. And so if Christ died, if he was crucified, and then we too are supposed to be dead. What did Christ die for? He died for sin. Then we too are to die to that sin. How can we live in it any longer if we were dead? And so the symbolism of baptism is meant to bring us home to the identity of this sphere of influence. I have died even as Christ died. He died for sin, I have also died to that sin. And then he has also been raised for that life. And so we too have been raised for this purpose of new life. And so baptism is meant to help us identify ourselves in this new sphere of influence. If there is the Adamic sphere, that nature of Adam, and that Christ sphere, Paul is saying, which one are you? Who do you belong to? What sphere of influence is yours? You are no longer in Adam. You have been transferred out from one family solidarity to another. We kind of have lost the idea of this solidarity, but in a lot of cultures, it is still very strong. The idea of a family and the intention and importance of a family. You know, right now there is incredible persecution that is taking place among Christians in Iraq and other places in the world. And what's happening is if a person becomes a follower of Christ, then a lot of people who are very uh, radical Islamic in, in their nature, what they do is they see your decision to follow Christ, they see that as an offense to their family. In other words, do you, you're bringing shame to our family by doing this, and so we are going to put you to death to stop the shame you're bringing to our family. And we don't have that. You know, we're not aware of those kinds of things. We, you're bringing shame to our family, but we don't go off and kill someone, right? But even in the Jewish culture, if a person becomes a follower of Christ, many times they will consider them dead to the family depending on their uh, level and their beliefs. And so in a lot of cultures, the idea is one of you are connecting yourself to a family, but by connecting yourself to this family, it brings influence or shame to the rest of the people around you. And so if you have now taken on this name, this fear of influence, don't you realize the shame you are causing if you continue in this sphere of influence? And so he's trying to bring about this identity. Who do you belong to? In what sphere of influence? What family are you showing solidarity to? Is it that of Adam or is it that of Christ? How are you going to recognize this? Because you've been baptized, you have identified with Christ, and that was why baptism and why it is so important. And it still is that way, and again, many places of the world. I know Mosaic, they do baptisms and they would actually show them on video, and then there was one young lady who wanted to be baptized, but her father is very prominent in the Islamic world and they had to 
shut the cameras down so that she could be baptized because otherwise it could cause great harm to her and her family if they were to see her being identified with Christ. And so understand that kind of pressure. Understand that kind of influence and stigma, if you will, that it has on these people. If they name themselves with Christ, it identifies them and it is talking about putting them in a whole other category for their families. And it's showing that kind of commitment to these things. And so we therefore are buried with him through baptism. That's how we're buried with him, through baptism. We're, we're identifying with him. We say this is now our new family. We are now part of this new covenant family. We are buried with him into the death in order that just as Christ raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And that idea is the life of God. It's what he talked about in the last chapter of eternal life. It's not just ongoing life. It is the life that God gives himself. Remember last time in 521, it says, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness uh, to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying the same thing here. He's talking about the same thing. This theme is continuing. He's just trying to develop it more and more. And so he goes on in verse five, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so he says, if we have been united... I mark that word if because that is an important thing, whether you have. It doesn't make the assumption that you have, but if you have been united, how have we been united? Through baptism, through the death of Christ, through what he has done, identifying with what he's done, identifying both in the death and the resurrection. That's how we are united with him in a death like his, through that baptism. Okay, Because you didn't really die, right? When you became a Christian, you didn't die. No, you identified with him through baptism. You said his death for sin, I am also dead to sin. So, what does that mean? We'll be united with him. How do we die to sin? Okay, there, I've, I'm dead to sin. Does that mean I no longer sin? Has anyone stopped sinning since they've been a follower of Jesus Christ? Has anyone stopped being tempted since they've been a follower of Christ? So what happened? How did you die to sin if sin is still there, if you're still tempted to sin? He tells us, for we know. This is something we understand. We have an understanding, a knowledge about this. This isn't about trying hard and believing hard enough. And if you believe hard enough that you have died to sin, then no longer are you going to be tempted anymore. He's not saying that this is going to take away that. All you have to do is reckon yourself dead and sin won't affect you. It doesn't work that way. It's you have an understanding. If you know that our old self, and that old self is our old Adamic nature, our identity, our Adamic personality, our old human being. If you know that your old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, 
that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. You're saying, I am no longer setting my camp up here. My flag has been taken up and it's been planted over here. And so I know that Christ died so that I would not continue to live in this way. Can I continue to live in that way? Yeah. He's going to talk about that in just a second. And so this idea for we know, we understand that this old person, this old man is the terminology that used to be used, this old self, it has been crucified with him. That's what the baptism represented. When you were baptized, you're saying, my life belongs to Jesus. Like he died, I died, I'm going to live in the life that he now gives instead of the life that I had before, which was the old self, apart from this life that God gives. We know the old self was crucified because, verse 7, anyone who has died has been set free from sin. What does he mean by set free from sin? Anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Well, we know it doesn't mean that we don't sin. We know it doesn't mean that we're not tempted anymore. What does it mean? Well, you don't have to sin. Did you have to sin before? Did you have a choice before? Were you controlled before? Are we controlled again? Are we controlled still? Let's read on. (laughs) Remember that the idea of sin has been spotlighted by the law. And so what we have to keep in mind is we've got in this the idea of Moses, the Torah. This shined a light on that sin, okay? The law illuminated the sin. Before the law came in, even though people were still in sin, they weren't aware of it. The law spotlighted it, it was magnified, that's what he was talking about in the last chapter. And so he goes on and he says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him, for we know, there's that word, that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again, death no longer has mastery over him, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way. Count yourselves. This is a term that has to do, it's a mathematical term, it's kind of like you would do if you were an accountant. Count yourselves, okay? In the same way, as we recognize Jesus died, he's no longer controlled, sin has no grip on him, death has no mastery over him. In the same way, we count ourselves. You count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. In other words, you say, my chips are here, not here. Count yourselves. You're you're going to invest in this new family, not in this one or not in this which spotlighted this. Moses is a big part, or the law is a big part of what he's talking about here. He's not just talking about if you sin or don't sin. He's talking about the law and their reliance on the law to bring them justification. And he's saying, no, Christ died to deal with this. So we don't have to deal with this. What we do is plant our flag here, not here. I'm not connected to Moses. I'm not connected to the law. I'm connected to Christ who died once for all. Why did he die? Because he was fulfilling what the law spotlighted, the sin that the law illuminated. He is dying for that. And so in the same way, we count. And again, that word is reckon, to add up, put it together yourselves dead to sin but alive to God. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Therefore, do not let. Those words are very important. It seems to imply that it's up to us. 
Therefore, what? Because this is now where your family is. This is now who your identity. You're being focused on here. I'm setting my camp here in this family. My solidarity solidarity lies with Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. That's implying that it's up to us. Do not behave as if you were what you in fact are not. Don't act as if this is who you are any longer. Don't behave as if that's who you are. You know, when a a baby is crying, you don't say, quit acting like a baby. Because that wouldn't be fair. They're a baby. Right? You know, if it's a little two-year-old and they're crying, stop acting like a baby. He's a baby. What do you expect a two-year-old to do? But when a 15-year-old starts crying, you say, don't act like a baby. Why? Because you are not a baby. Don't act like you don't belong here. Don't live as if you haven't died to sin. Don't act that way. And that's what he's telling them. He's saying, don't act that way. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of sin, instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Act like who you really are. You see, this is something that we have to understand and it's a choice of our will to say, I have died with Christ. The baptism was evidence of that commitment that I made and now I am alive to him, so I'm not going to act as if I don't belong to him. And so we say, oh man, I just couldn't help it. You know what? Quit acting like a baby. You could help it. You just didn't want to. And there could be a lot of things involved with that. But when we sin, it's not because we had to sin. And this is going to be real important as we get into chapter 7. Why do I do the things that I don't want to do? That whole part. He's leading us into that argument. Because that isn't... a Justification, well, I guess you can because you can't help it. He's telling us, act like who you really are. Don't you know you've been dead to these things? You are now alive to these things. And so act like who you really are. Paul is saying, you aren't in Adam, you're in Christ, so don't behave as if you were in Adam. And this is kind of what he was talking about in the whole chapter 5, 12 through 21, that whole idea of Adam and Christ. You know, Adam sinned and brought in this, but now Christ has delivered us so that we have a different family we belong to. And so now we have an understanding of what God wants for our lives. And so we're supposed to live towards that thing, those things. And so when there's that temptation, whatever the temptation is, that thing that is going to pull you out of this identity of Christ, he says, don't offer yourselves to that. Don't, don't see yourself as part. See yourself as who you really are. Understand who you really are. Now, I wish that there was some magic thing that happened so that when you came a follower of Christ, you just didn't have to sin anymore. But it's still a choice that we make. The difference is we now have the Spirit of God within us to illuminate our understanding and help us to identify who we really are, but we still have to make the choice. If you would just see your life and all you've been living or how you've been living, you would see that that's the truth. You would see that, yeah, I've become a a follower of Christ. I have the Spirit of God. Do you still sin? Yeah. Why do you still sin? Well, because I make bad choices. Because I'm identifying myself, I'm still acting like this kind of a baby. Oh, it'd be great. I have the Spirit of God. I don't need to sin anymore. I'm free from sin. 
You're free from sin if you recognize who you are and you live in identity with who you are. Otherwise, you still have the potential to act like a baby. And Paul is saying, don't. Because you still can. And so, understand that there's still responsibility. Becoming a follower of Christ doesn't free you from the responsibility to act that way. And it's not a magic pill that no longer do I have temptation, I no longer want to sin. Oh gosh, that would be wonderful. It would be wonderful if I no longer was tempted to sin, but I still am tempted. And what I have to do is say, I don't belong to this anymore. I belong to this. I'm not with this family. I have put my camp, my flag in this camp. This is who I belong to. And so really Paul is just telling us to grow up and live like who we're really supposed to be. Because sin shall no longer be your master. Why won't it be my master? Because you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin won't be my master because I'm not here. I'm under grace. And he's pointing us back to the covenant, which is Abraham. The covenant that God made with us. I'm not under the law. I'm under this covenant God made with Abraham. I am in God's good standing because of what has happened. He promised Abraham. Christ fulfilled that promise. That's where we're connected to. Not to the law. The law just illuminated, hey, this is what sin looks like. This is where you sin. I'm not under that. And so, sin's not going to have master because I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. And so, the idea of sin or the idea of righteousness, first of all, is that, again, covenant faithfulness of God, that covenant relationship with God, and then the idea of grace, it's the point that the law illuminates the problem. And so if we are under the law, the ethnic people, the Jews, then sin would have dominion over you. How does it have dominion over you? That's chapter 7. We have to wait. Okay, he's, I told you, you got to wait for delayed gratification because he's not spelling it all now. He's building the case. And so if sin is not going to have dominion over us because we are no longer under the law, The law, again, represents that nation, the ethnic Israel, but we are now under grace. And so we are free from that responsibility. If we have come out of the Adam solidarity, if we've left this camp, if we're no longer a Hatfield, we've become a McCoy kind of a thing, right? I'm no longer under the Adam solidarity and the Moses solidarity. What does that mean? If I'm not here, where do I belong? And that's where he goes in 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Shall I sin because I'm not under here, but I'm under grace? Can I continue living like it doesn't matter? Can I continue to sin because I'm not under the law? By no means, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And so now the idea, again, shall we sin? And what Paul is doing is he's developing the idea of servanthood, okay, of being a slave, of being obedient to one master or the other. You know, Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. You will love the one and hate the other. You will hold to one and despise the other. Paul is doing the same thing. If you really belong to this family, who are you going to enslave yourself to? And we would do well to recognize that when we give ourselves to the things that don't belong to Christ, we are enslaving ourselves into those things. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. It doesn't mean you don't have God in your life. But what it does mean is you are enslaving yourself to a master. Do you want to enslave yourself to this master? Or do you want to be free from them? 
And so we have to make the choice. Who am I going to enslave myself to? Because that's where he's bringing it to. He says, you can lead to death if you're a slave to sin or to obedience that leads to righteousness. But thanks, verse 17, being to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that is now claimed your allegiance. I love that, that this has now claimed my allegiance. I now am committed to this. It has claimed my allegiance. And it's interesting because it's God who has claimed our allegiance. In other words, it is his love that has led us to repentance. This begins with God. It was God who started this covenant. It is God who continues this covenant. His love has now claimed our allegiance. We, we heard this message and we responded to it. Why? Because God initiated the call and we responded to that call. And so he is now has our allegiance. In verse 18, he says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. The word is diakosnosio. You have been slaves to the covenant. That is the meaning here. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave to the covenant that God made. Because the covenant that began with Abraham, fulfilled in Christ, this is what we're enslaved to, enslaved to the promise of God, not to the law that showed our sin. And so we've become slaves to this covenant. Shall we continue to sin? Paul develops this idea of servanthood, obedient to one master. Who is our master? Is it going to be our flesh that the law spotlights, or is it going to be grace that God gives? Who is our master, the covenant or the flesh? Who are we going to obey? And he says, I'm using, verse 19, an example. In other words, this idea of slavery. It's just an illustration. I'm giving you an example. You're actually free in Christ. The illustration of being a slave is to help us understand what is taking place. Okay, we've been set free, but you have to understand this idea of slavery just helps us to process and kind of connect the dots to where we need to be. And so he's using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves... And the idea of yourselves, it might say your members. It's parts of your body. It's parts of your personality. It's who you are. You used to surrender yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer yourselves, your members, your, your body, your thoughts, your personality. Offer yourselves instead to righteousness. And again, the righteousness is to this covenant membership. Instead of offering yourself to the life that you used to live that was under this idea of sin, offer yourself now to the promise that God has given, to the covenant that God has made with you. And you see, both of these things are talking about allegiance. You're giving yourself an allegiance to one or the other. You're either giving allegiance to this Adamic nature, or you're giving allegiance to Christ and who he is, the promise, the covenant, the righteousness of God. Because that's what the righteousness of God means. It means the covenant faithfulness of God. The agreement that God made. So who are you yielding yourselves to? And again, it helps us to understand that whatever we commit ourselves to, we enslave ourselves to. And I think we know this. I know this. I know the things that I've enslaved myself to. And it could be anything from bitterness. It could be addictions to you know, drugs to whatever it is. There are so many things that we can enslave ourselves to. I spoke to someone yesterday. They called me panicking, not sure if they're going to they ask me, I'm going to run because the police are coming to arrest me and I don't know what I should do. And 
as they started sharing some of the things with me, you know, what they had been doing is enslaving themselves to this lifestyle. And this lifestyle finally caught up with them and they got busted for it. And now they're having to deal with the penalty of the things that they've been doing and the lifestyle. And it's like, well, yeah, you've committed yourself to this way. You've enslaved yourself to this. And now this is what happens. And so I had to encourage them, don't run from the police. Don't run from the law. You don't want to live like that. You have to deal with these things how the chips are going to fall, get yourself a lawyer, and move forward in this direction. But why were you here? Well, because you enslaved yourself to these things. And again, how many times do we get that wake-up call? God's saying, hey, what are you enslaving yourself to? Because you might find yourself enslaved to an attitude about someone or even about God. You might be enslaved to a habit. You know, I, 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 I can't get by, my evening can't get by unless I, you know, smoke a joint or I have a glass of wine or I have, you know, this to just blow off some steam. I, I, can't, I can't go on without this and pretty soon we become enslaved to those things. And we need to be careful. What are we enslaving ourselves to? What are, what are we allowing to master us? You know, and I'm not saying that, you know, you can't have a glass of wine, but are you enslaved to it? You know, I'm not saying you, you can't have a time. I just got to go out, you know, and hang out with the guys and go play some ball or do something. That's not a problem. But what are we enslaving ourselves to? And if we've used our bodies and, and committed our life and all who we are to certain things, well, can't we take what we've committed ourselves to and do that towards God. So many times people who have personalities and uh, a character that is very um, structured, that is kind of get it done kind of person. You know, well, I, in the business world, I got it done and I did this and I did this and I did this very focused and very methodical in how they do these things. And I've lived for my career and then they come to faith in Christ and they can take those same kind of dedications and commitments and they could use those towards Christ. Well, how I gave myself here, I'm going to give myself now towards the things of God. And I'm going to do these things to maybe help other people. I'm going to commit these things to maybe bring others to an awareness of God. And so use your body, your mind, your whole being, yourself, as he says there, to be a slave to what is right, to this promised covenant that God has made with us, leading to holiness, leading to this understanding of being like God, being set apart to him. In verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. You didn't care about the covenant of God. You were living your life apart from it. You were free from it. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Again, he's just bringing about the obvious. You did those things, and to the people who you might be talking to, <clears throat> you were involved into idolatry, you were involved in sexual impurity, you gave yourself over to these things, and now you're ashamed of those things. They result in death. Verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Again, he's bringing this idea of life here under understanding. The idea that you are being brought into a position of life. An example, because actually you are now set free. All of what makes us who we are is now connected to Christ. In verse 23, for the wages... He's going back to this term, the wages. Remember, count all these things. He's back to verse 11 as count yourself dead because the wages of sin is death. And so if you count yourself dead, then you don't have to deal with the wages of that death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Again, the life of the ages, the life to come that is here in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we see in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, it ends with this understanding of eternal life. 
It ends with this understanding of a life that is belonging to God. And he's just trying to bring more about what camp are we in? Are we going to be in the sphere of Adam, which is being illuminated by the law? Or are we going to be in the sphere of Christ that was connected to the covenant, the righteousness that God had made with Abraham that has been fulfilled in Christ? Whose camp are we going to be in? And so he's continuing that frame of thought. And so when we get into chapter 7, and we start saying that we are bound to Christ, understand that he is still dealing with these identities. Those who see themselves under the law, under Moses, the Torah, and those who see themselves in the promise. And so I want you to think as you go through chapter 7, when Paul is saying those things, well, the good that I would not do You know, where is he? So, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, verse 21, evil is right there with me. Who is he talking about? When he says me, what me is he talking about? Is he talking about a me that was under the law? Or is he talking about a Paul who is connected now to the promise of God? Because it's very important to understand who he is identifying with through that portion of those passages. Otherwise, it, it gets really weird, hard to understand. And there's a lot of ideas on who Paul is talking about there. But I think if we have this idea in mind, it'll help bring clarity to that passage as we get to that point. So that's your homework for the week. Go through that and keep this idea in mind. Who is Paul identifying with in chapter 7? What is he bringing about? Who are we bound to? And is maybe that the identity he's talking about? Any questions in chapter 6? Yes. Yeah, I mean, the law was good. The law wasn't bad. You know, the law showed us what we weren't, you know, or what we failed to do. It showed us our inadequacies. And so, yeah, living in Christ, it, it doesn't mean that we don't have to you know, be the people who God wants us to be, which the law helped illuminate. Yeah, again, there's some of them that it's like, okay, then what about um, shall keep the Sabbath holy? Do we have to keep that one up? Because the Sabbath was Saturday, it wasn't Sunday. Do you keep Sabbath? Well, again, the, the law, yeah, the law that was given was there for the people of Israel. Okay, so there are commandments that are solely for the nation of Israel. And Paul has said, you don't have to keep that national law. Remember, when the idea of law is being stated, here it specifically has to do with circumcision, the Sabbath, and with the dietary laws. That's really at the focus of those things. It doesn't mean, you know, you can't murder people and those things. That's still part of the heart of God and the character of God. And so, yeah, those things are still important, a part of the covenant, you know, but the idea of thou shall not commit commit murder wasn't here with Abraham, but it was still wrong. He said it was still sin, okay? The idea of now the law is that all those other things that were ceremonial just for Israel, like the Sabbath. We don't have to keep the Sabbath. He's going to go into that later on. We don't have to worry about seasons, new moons, dietary laws. We're not under that obligation. We're not obligated to. Yeah, I mean, it's good. Remember, the whole point of the Sabbath was to tell man that you were created by God. In other words, you are are not just a person who works. You're not just a person who lives to make money, you are a person who lives to worship God. And so take a day and do that. So in a sense, we can do it on a Sunday, unless you're a pastor, then you have to work, you know, or music leader or something like that, or set the sound up. These guys all work on Sunday, you know. And and so it's good to have a day, though, that you acknowledge God, that you belong to God. That was kind of the point of the Sabbath. But the, the Jewish people took it to a whole other level. 
you know, what, what is work? Well, can you light a match? You know, that's work you're doing. I mean, they had a lot, list of things. You can't sew on the Sabbath because that's work. You know, can you help a donkey out of a pit? Well, you can do that because you're supposed to help your animal. But can you help a man out of a pit? Well, it doesn't say you can help a man, but you can help a donkey. You know, that, that kind of thing. So we're not un- obligated to the ceremonial laws of the Jewish people because we're not Jews. That law was specifically for them. Christ is not requiring us to go back and keep the law of Moses. Our connection is to the covenant of God the promise that God made to Abraham that through you, all the nations will be blessed. How are they going to be blessed? Through Jesus. It was supposed to be through Israel and it was through Israel, through the incarnation of Israel in Jesus. Okay, God didn't make a mistake when he said all the nations were going to be blessed through him. He meant it and he fulfilled the covenant in Jesus. It wasn't like, well, let's start over. Let's try something else. You know, this whole, you know, Jewish people, that didn't work. So let me just bring Jesus and not, okay, the doors are open now. No, he's still, I mean, what Paul, remember at the very beginning, Paul is trying to connect the Jews and the Gentiles into this new covenant family. And the family connects not here, but here. Okay? That's where we are brought to. That's why Abraham was so important. That's why he is the example. He is the father of faith. And so Abraham is linked to Christ. See, Jesus is very Jewish. But the Jews didn't like Christ because it now frees us from the obligations of Moses and the Hebrew law to the Jewish people. It doesn't mean everything in the law is bad. Like, shall not murder shall not you know, bear false witness. Those things are all still good. But we're not um, obligated to all the legalities of the Jewish law, the Torah, because Christ has fulfilled those things, but he did it through the promise of Abraham. We count ourselves dead. In other words, our baptism is the symbol that I am not this anymore, I am this. And so even though we have you know, the tendency towards sin, we are not obligated or blind to what Christ wants and so living in here. We are aware of this. You know, Jude says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. How does he keep us from stumbling? He's given us his spirit that illuminates our mind to what we can and can't do, what is right and what is wrong. We have an understanding and we have a will. He is able to keep us from falling, but we are part of that. He is able, are we willing? You know, and you find so many times, we're not willing. No, I want to gossip. I like to. I want to get angry. It makes me feel good. I want to sin because it brings pleasure to the members, my, my body, my person. And so we are willing to give up our identity because we want those things. But the Spirit of God illuminates and then convicts us. That's wrong. And if we're not convicted, that's a problem. But if we're convicted and it's like, ah, that's wrong, okay, count yourself dead. You don't live here anymore. You live here. What family are you a part of? You know, it, it's amazing the things that can happen when a person's will is committed to something. I mean, you guys see those YouTube videos of the guy who's, you know, got back problems and weighs, you know, 400 pounds, and then he starts eating and exercising and taking yoga, and they said he could never walk, and then you see the guy running, you know, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Why? He was committed to that. It became his focus. I'm going to live for this goal. What would happen if we lived for that goal to follow after Christ instead of just myself and giving myself to those things? I mean, the potential of the human beings is incredible if we would commit ourselves to those things. So he's saying, count yourself dead. Commit yourself to here. Reckon yourself dead. 
why the wages of that life is death. The gift of God through Christ is life. And so you've died with Christ, you can also live with him. And so the promise is there to commit ourselves to him. You know, seeing some of and reading some of the things that have been happening to those who follow Christ in other countries and how they are giving their lives to follow after Jesus. And it's just like horrific and it's powerful that they are being martyred for Christ. And you think, I could never do that. It's amazing what you can do when you're committed to something. You know, we say we can't do it, but we're not in that situation. And, and maybe being in that situation and having to live that kind of decisive life, if I'm going to follow Christ, it can cost me my life. It makes those commitments a little stronger. You know, here it costs us little to be followers of Christ. You know, it might cost us a Sunday or Wednesday night. Man, I had, I had to go to church on Wednesday, you know. Uh, it, it's like, you know, those are the things that we count costs and think of how difficult it is where there are people who are literally in danger for their lives and their family. I mean, I saw pictures of little children just, you know, being tortured, and it's just horrific. Why? Because their parents are followers of Jesus. You know, and you think, oh, my gosh, how could I live like that? You know, and... and Paul is trying to help us understand those things. The book of Revelation is really all about the suffering that takes place with those who are followers of Christ because that's when persecution was very strong. You know, the whole point of those who endure till the end. He's talking to those who are being persecuted for Christ very specifically and then throughout history, you know, in those areas. Any other, did I answer that question or thought okay I, I find myself i'm still talking uh, did i finish what i was supposed to say any other questions or thoughts no okay chapter seven next week and keep this model in mind of who moses connects us to who abraham connects us to as you go through that passage let's pray father i pray as we understand these things that we would Realize, Father, that there is a life to be had in surrender and service to you. That we, if we would be your slaves, then we would actually be free. And Lord, may we stop acting like babies. May we stop acting like we are children of Adam. And may we start acting like we are children of Christ. May we stop making excuses for ourselves and our weaknesses. May we realize that we are dead to that life and we are alive in you. That we are committed to you. That we are alive in you. That you have given us your life. You have given us your spirit. You have called us your children we have your faithfulness, your righteousness through the covenant that you have made with us through Christ. Lord, may we take hold of that and may we allow it to shape our lives, ourselves, our members, our thoughts, how we live so that we will live with you and become holy, even as you are holy. Again, thank you for this time. Bless our continued time here together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.